First Peter 3.17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 39. Genesis 39, we're going to pick up the story of Joseph today. Joseph uh, is the oldest, uh, or I guess the oldest son of Rachel. He's child number 11 of Jacob. Let's give you a little context. Um, Joseph, being the oldest son of the favorite wife of Jacob, is treated with a great deal of favoritism by Jacob. And as we talked about the last couple of weeks, if you want to screw your family up, practicing favoritism is a guaranteed way to get the job done. Joseph gets set in authority over his 10 older brothers, and Jacob gives him a special multicolored tunic, as you saw on Steve Burrow, yes, last week. Joseph has 10 older brothers, and Jacob has made it very clear that Joseph is going to be receiving the birthright. Joseph is going to inherit the family birthright, which means he's going to receive a double inheritance. He's going to receive special authority over the family. And Joseph, at 17 years old, has a couple of dreams, both of which involve his family, including mom and dad, bowing down before him. Needless to say... If your kid brother has dreams of you bowing down before him, that would not ingratiate you to him. As a matter of fact, his brothers told him to go pound sand or something like that. His brothers react with hatred and jealousy, and even his father Jacob rebukes him and says, what's this dream stuff you've been having about us going to bow down to you? Forget about it, as they say in New York. So Jacob's 10 oldest sons, they're shepherds. They're nomads, and they move from place to place depending on where the pasture is. Rob's going to show you a map of Canaan um, and give you an idea of where they go. Uh, they actually go from Hebron all the way up to Dothan, which is about 70 miles north, because that's where the rainfall is. That's where the sheep go, because that's where the pasture is. And Jacob hasn't heard from his 10 older brothers in a while, so he sends Joseph, the favorite son, up to check on him. And his ten older brothers see him coming, and as we talked about last week, they hatch a plot to kill him. So we're going to take him and kill him and throw him in a pit and tell Dad that a wild animal got him, and we're going to get rid of him that way. Well, Reuben, the oldest son, is the one who's going to be held accountable if something happens to Joseph. So he says, don't kill him, don't kill him. Throw him in this pit, this empty water cistern. And he plans on coming back to rescue him later on. Well, in the meanwhile, when Reuben's gone, Judah, son number four, says, you know, why would you kill him? There's no money in killing him. Why don't we just sell him? So let's sell him to a caravan of passing traders. There's Ishmaelites or Midianites, same, same people group. 
And there's a caravan, a trade route that runs all the way from, uh, really from Damascus all the way down to Egypt. And it goes right through Dothan and Shechem and all the way down to, to Egypt. And so they sell them for 20 pieces of silver. And it's about 260 miles from Dothan up in the north all the way down to Tanis, which is in Egypt, and that's where Joseph winds up. So Joseph is a long way from home. You talk about a stranger in a strange land at 17 years old. He is a long way from home. This chapter, chapter 39, is often used as an illustration of how to successfully resist temptation because Joseph obviously is tempted pretty severely. Someone has written, have you ever noticed that temptation is like a telemarketer? It comes to us when it's least convenient. It comes back again and again and again and again. It keeps pushing even after you say no. And it makes what it is selling sound great. But there's always a catch. This chapter, by the way, does have a lot to say about temptation, but the theme of chapter 39 is a lot broader than that. It really illustrates how Christians, you and I, should deal with suffering and with success under the sovereignty of God. It reveals God's hand upon the lives of His servants and upon you and I in every circumstance. I want you to open your Bibles, if you'd be so kind, and look at chapter 2 and chapter 3, I mean, verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 39. And the same phrase is repeated twice, the exact same words. In verse 2 and verse 3, it says, And the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 2, and it says the exact same thing in verse 3. And this occurs when Jake Joseph is living in Potiphar's house, and he's managing his estate. He has been given authority and responsibility. He says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And you look and you go, Whoa, I guess he would be. I mean, if God's with you, how could you not be successful? Go to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 21 and 23. 21 and 23 repeat the exact same phrase, and the Lord was with Joseph. So four times in this chapter it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. The first time the Lord's with Joseph, he's in charge of Potiphar's estate. Where is he the second time it says the Lord was with him? He's in prison. So he's not in the penthouse anymore, he's in prison. The Lord is with Joseph when he was in power, and the Lord is equally with Joseph when he's in prison and powerless. The same God is present in Joseph's life regardless of circumstances. And that's true for you and I today too, isn't it? Jesus promised his children in Matthew 28, 20, I, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I had a friend of mine who refused to fly. She took a train everywhere. And I said, why? She said, well, it says, lo, I am with you always. It doesn't say, hi, I am with you always. <laughs> Only lo. So she didn't fly. And that was her justification for not, for not flying. Yeah. In light of Jesus' promise to be with us always, it, it, it's also good for us to recall God's command to Joshua when he was tasked with leading Israel into the promised land. They were on the border of the promised land, and God had a little word for Joshua before they crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land because he had multiple opposing armies of giants facing him. And God gives Joshua a very interesting command in Joshua 1.9. God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
For the Lord your God is with you. How often? Wherever you go. Now, you're going to go some places this week and next week and next month, and you're going to be in situations, and you're going to wonder whether God is with you. I promise you. We all have circumstances where we wonder if God is present because they're not pleasant circumstances. Be assured if God is with Joseph in prison, he's with you wherever you go. We all find ourselves in places where faith and courage are required, and we all face trouble and trials, and the same God of Joshua and the same God of Joseph is the same God for us today, and his, and his word for us is the same as it was to Joshua. Do not fear, I am with you. And we're going to find out today that Joseph is going to need that word from God because the circumstances he faces today are difficult. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused everything he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all Potiphar owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Here's the principle. Since God is always with us, we should be faithful to him in whatever circumstances he chooses to put us in. Since God is always with us, we should be faithful to him in whatever circumstance he chooses to put us. Now, Joseph is 17. He's taken down by the Midianite traders he sold on an auction block in Egypt to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar is the chief of security for Pharaoh. He's the head of the Egyptian KGB. The word for bodyguard here is a very interesting word. It literally means executioner. So he's the chief executioner, chief of security. Uh, this guy wasn't Mr. Rogers. The guy was more like Dirty Harry. His job was to detect any threats to the throne, any threats to Pharaoh, before they materialized and neutralized them, he was probably very good at taking people's heads off. He deals with criminal minds full-time, just like our friend Ernie. And as a result, unlike Ernie, this guy is cynical about human nature. He deals only with bad people. And as a result, Potiphar probably has a low trust level of most people, to say the least. And the Bible tells us that in this very negative environment, as a slave, the Lord was with Joseph, and so he became a successful man. Now, Joseph's not an overnight success, in case you're wondering. He says he progressively became a successful man as a result of the Lord's blessing. Remember, he's 17 when he's sold into slavery. He gets promoted to prime minister when he's 30. So he's in God's training academy for... 13 years. 
And God's training academy for Joseph is not what you would expect. You know, you and I think of a training academy, you go, well, that's kind of like academic prep school or grad school. No, 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 no. This is called the school of servanthood. This is called being a slave to a master for 13 years. That's God's training academy for Joseph. He's a foreigner. He's imprisoned on trumped-up charges, we're going to find out. And notice who calls him a successful man. Who says he's successful? God says he became a successful man, even when he's a slave in the house of his master, Potiphar. See, God's definition of success and our definition of success often differ. Joseph was successful because he was faithful to God, not because he was rich and powerful and all those other things. So God empowered Joseph to the degree that Potiphar noticed something very interesting. Everything Joseph touched prospered. Everything he touched worked. I mean, this guy had the Midas touch. It didn't prosper him, per se, it prospered Potiphar. So Potiphar is not stupid. He notices that everything Joseph does works, so the, what, what's the logical thing to do? Give him more. I mean, if everything he's doing is productive, give him more and let him be more productive. What's interesting is that Potiphar knew that God was the reason Joseph was successful. How do you think Potiphar figured out that God was the reason that Joseph was successful? I don't think this guy had spiritual discernment, okay? He knew because Joseph gave God the credit for his success. You know, for us, God blessed your life and my life beyond our understanding. The fact that you're here is a major miracle, right? Especially when you looked in the mirror the most morning, you said, you know, I should not be here. The way I feel, I definitely should not be here, right? But you're here. That's the blessing of God. When good things happen in our life and they happen every day, who should we give the credit to? God. We should verbally give God the credit. You know, it's interesting. The world, typically, when good things happen, who gets the credit? Well, I'm so smart, and therefore it happened because I'm so smart. When bad things happen, who do we blame? How come God didn't blah, blah, blah? We don't look in the mirror and go, the bad thing happened because I was stupid and sinful, right? And the good thing happened because of God's blessing. Well, when good things happen, give God the credit. And that's what Joseph is doing. God's blessing him, but he's given God the credit, and therefore Potiphar knows that it's as a result of God's blessing. Now, God does the blessing, but Joseph is very diligent. He's a very hard worker, and Potiphar noticed. Joseph probably started working in the fields. Potiphar noticed he was productive, promoted him to the house. He went on from being just one of the slaves in the house to being Potiphar's personal administrative assistant. He was then promoted to an overseer role over all, and finally he became the chief operating officer and the chief financial officer of the entire estate of Potiphar. Over the years, by being faithful and faithful, and faithful, and God blessed him, and he was diligent. Now, Potiphar likely had a pretty sizable estate. He was chief of security for Pharaoh. I want you to think about it. Would, would Potiphar have to be trusted by Pharaoh? I mean, in that era, 
the people that protected your life had to be completely trustworthy or the easiest way to get you assassinated is just for your chief of security to look the other way and oops, sorry Pharaoh, something happened. So Potiphar had to be very trustworthy and he was probably very well compensated. Joseph was managing his entire estate and he had to be very competent, but he also had to have impeccable character. Because this position Joseph was in not only required large intelligence, it required deep integrity. And that's true today, too. Someone who's extremely skilled, but not ethical, that doesn't work too well. If you're the CFO for an organization, you have access to the money, you're the COO, you have access to the, everything in the organization, you have to be trustworthy. But Joseph was successful because he recognized that he was working for God and not just for Potiphar. God commands us in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, whatever you do, not just in a paid job, whatever you do, changing diapers, washing dishes, cleaning house, taxing people, whatever you do, large or small, do your work heartily. That means enthusiastically. That means with a whole heart. As for the Lord rather than from men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance as the Lord God whom you serve. You know, we often work at jobs and people say, well, I really don't do much. I'm not working. That's not true. You're always working. You're always doing something. I don't care whether the world thinks it's successful or not. That is comprehensively irrelevant. What does God say about what you're doing? That's all that counts. Because ultimately your employer is who? God, ultimately, he's the only one you're accountable to for whatever you're doing. And many of you are volunteering and doing tasks that, quite frankly, are thankless. And nobody notices. And you think, well, this is not important. Not true. God notices. God values what we do if we do it unto him, regardless of what the world says. Joseph knew that. He was working for the Lord, ultimately. So God supernaturally blesses the whole estate of Potiphar on account of Joseph. And the more Potiphar turned over to Joseph, the more God blessed Potiphar. And you're looking at this and you're saying, why would God bless this slave-owning KGB guy for Joseph's sake? What's that about? Why does God bless you and me for Jesus' sake? Same difference. We serve a God who wants a relationship with people. God wants the lost to be found, and he works through his people to reach lost people. So God blesses you and I based on what? What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He blesses us not because of what we do, because we're self-righteous, which we're not. We get blessed based on Jesus' work. Potiphar gets blessed based on Joseph's work. Secondly, God was training Joseph to become, ultimately, the CFO for the entire Egyptian economy. He was going to be the prime minister for the economy, and Potiphar's estate was the training gun. It was kind of prep school. It says that Potiphar is so impressed with Joseph that he literally gave him the keys and said, run the whole thing. Everything. And it says... He trusted Joseph so much that all he cared about was when his next meal was. That means he didn't think about anything on the estate except his food. 
That's an indication of how much authority he had given to Joseph. It's interesting. The last little phrase of verse 6 says what? This is the key to the next section. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. These exact same words were used to describe his mother, Rachel, a few chapters back. There's only three men in the Bible that were described as handsome. Only three. Joseph, King David, and his son Absalom. All three were sexually tempted, and two out of the three fell. Only Joseph successfully resisted. It's been an observation of mine that physical attractiveness can be a handicap and not an asset, unless it's managed with godly character. Our culture values physical attractiveness almost as much as money. Many people believe that if you're good-looking, you must be smart. Right. The movie Fiddler on the Roof, Tevia, the lead character, says, if you're rich, they think you really know. And we do the same thing. Physical looks and money are never a proxy for brains. And brains are never a proxy for godly wisdom. The world is filled with brilliant fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the fool. And we have a world of educated fools. Verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to lie beside her or be with her. Get your pencils out. This is going to be a little bit longer uh, principle. To defeat temptation, we must daily live with an awareness of God's presence. To defeat temptation, we must daily live with an awareness of God's presence. We must determine to remain pure. We must develop a plan in advance and declare our position up front. To defeat temptation, we must daily live with an awareness of God's presence determined to remain pure, develop a plan in advance, and declare our position up front. Let me give a little context. Potiphar's marriage to his wife is probably an arranged marriage. She was probably attracted to him due to his political power, his position, and his wealth. Unfortunately, as chief of security for Pharaoh, Potiphar was probably on the road a lot. He probably wasn't home a lot. His wife probably feels neglected. And quite frankly, she has emotional needs that aren't getting met. This doesn't take a rocket science to figure out. If your husband is the chief executioner, he's probably not a sensitive guy. Okay? He deals with criminals. He takes people's heads off. Right? He's not... He's not a sensitive guy emotionally. He's not wired that way. And he's not home. Joseph is tall, dark, and handsome and mature way beyond his years. 
Potiphar's wife has been watching him since he got promoted to the office in the house, if you will, and he observed that Joseph is both very competent and he's very caring. He's a very compassionate guy. It's likely that she's been dropping hints to Joseph about her availability for weeks now. However, one day when Potiphar is gone, she propositions him directly. I mean, this, there's no question what she's asking him to do, right? This is not subtle, right? Say yes. This is called the direct approach. And just in case you wondered what's going on. She is the wife of one of the most powerful people in Egypt, and she is used to getting what she wants. And she says, lie with me. Joseph not only refuses, he tells her why he refuses. He knows why he's refusing. He declares his commitment to purity right up front. And he says, look, my master has entrusted me with everything in this estate. I mean everything. There is nothing in this house that's greater than I. The only one thing that's off limits is you because you're his wife. And violating my master's trust would be utterly wrong. Kind of reminds us of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? God gives them access to everything in the garden except one thing, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Satan comes along and says, you know, God is not a good God because he was withheld that one tree. So Adam and Eve go, you know, you're right. God's really not fair. We should have access to everything. So they throw out all of God's blessings for one bite. And you look and you go, stupid is as stupid does. And we do the same thing all the time. We say, God, how come I can't have blah, blah, blah? And God says, Father knows best. I know you better than you know you. When I say no, it's for your own good. And it's very easy. Satan comes along and says, well, if God really loved you, he would let you do that. No, when God says no, he has good reason. Because he knows what's better for us than we know. So Joseph says, I'm not going to violate my master's trust. Number two. Marriage is sacred in God's sight, and you are off limits. You are married to this man called my master. Now, if you look at Joseph's family of origin, he has observed a very interesting family structure. His dad has four wives and 12 children. That could lead to some interesting dynamics, and there's a lot of discord in this family. But Joseph has observed that his father, Jacob, has always been faithful. He was married to four women, but he was faithful to those four women as well. I know you're saying, how does that work, Brad? Tell me how that works. And the answer is, I don't know. I know that loving Marin requires all of me, as the movie says, you know. So I don't know how you divide that by four. It didn't work very well, just in case you're wondering. The most important thing about Joseph, though, is he's very sensitive to sin. Four times it says in this chapter, and the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And you look at that and you go, man, I'd like the Lord to be with me so I'm a successful man, successful person. It's interesting that if the Lord is with you, are you living every day with an awareness of His being with you? Of His being intimate with you? Of His watching everything you watch? So when you flip on the internet and you watch, 
he's watching what you're watching. And that retching sound is when he's puking because you're watching stuff that makes him sick. See, we want God to bless us, but when you're intimate with God, you better be sensitive to sin because God hates sin. All sin. And Joseph was living every day with an awareness of God being with him. And he values his relationship with God more than anything else. He says, how can I do this great sin and sin against God? That relationship he has with God is so precious to him, he doesn't want to do anything that will violate that. And he understands that all sin is great sin. You know, Satan always tempts us with the promise that sin will satisfy. And he says, sin will satisfy you more than God will. And you look at that when you're not in the lust of temptation, you go, well, that's really stupid. Uh-huh. But it sure seems to work. It's been working on the human race for six and a half thousand years of recorded history because sin is pleasurable. Short term. What we forget about is the long-term consequences of sin. I'm going to give you an example here. Hopefully you'll, you'll appreciate it. How many of you have a favorite food? Some of you are not telling the truth, right? We all have favorite foods, right? How many of you have ever in your whole life binge ate your favorite food? Yeah, I mean, just binge ate. You know how long the pleasure of your favorite food lasts? Until you swallow. And baby, when you swallow, the thrill is gone. Yes? It is, and then your stomach curses you for putting a load on it that it was never meant to bear, right? It's the same thing. Adultery promises what? Pleasure and thrill, and it delivers pain and deception and brokenness and isolation. All sin separates us from God, who is the source of what? All goodness, all joy, all happiness, all contentment, all peace. So sin is always a lie. Temptation is always a lie. You know that. It's easy to conclude that Joseph, now he's laid it down. He said, the answer is no, I'm not going to do it. You think, well, she'll respect him. She'll leave him alone. Uh, no, not really. See, Satan had to only tempt Adam and Eve one time. You know why? That's all it took. They fell the first time. I mean, they didn't say go away and come back later. They just, they took it right now. First, first go around, they fell. Not so with Joseph. It says every day he comes into the house. Remember, his office is in Potiphar's house. He's been promoted. Every day he's in contact with her and she harasses him and harasses him and harasses him. And this woman used to get in her way. Satan is the master tempter. And he will never stop tempting God's people until they are safe in heaven for out of his reach. If you think you're going to be free from temptation in this life, you better get your armor on. It's not going to happen. An old priest was asked by a young man, Father, when will I cease to be tempted by the sins of the flesh? The priest replied, I wouldn't trust myself, son, until I was dead for three days. <laughs> That's not bad. So Joseph then puts a plan for purity in place. He not only declares himself, he's walking with awareness of God, but he puts a plan for purity. He avoids situations where he's vulnerable to temptation. 
One of the things that you'll notice is Satan's not very creative, but he is very clever. Satan knows where you're weak. He knows where you're temptable, and he will use the same temptation over and over and over and over because he knows where you're vulnerable. He's a very good observer. He knows where we're weak, and he will always craft the same temptation because he knows where we're most likely to stumble. He'll be different contexts, different situations, but it's the same temptation. And if you know that about yourself, hopefully by our age, we ought to know somewhat where we're temptable, unless we just simply say, well, my solution to temptation is real simple. I just give in. I'm never tempted. I just, I just do it, right? There's no temptation to resist. That's not a godly solution. But jo Joseph knows the situation, and he says, I have to put guardrails in place to avoid this woman. And I can only imagine how he tried to do it. I'll bet you money as ruler of the estate, he always had another slave with him. I got to go in the house. You're coming with me. Right? There's going to be two of us. We're going to have witnesses here. I'm not going in there alone. Right? Interestingly enough, he probably tried to work outside the home as much as possible. He didn't want to be around her. It says he, didn't do, he tried everything to stay away from her. Paradoxically, the more he resisted her, the more attractive he became to her. Because we always want what we cannot have, right? I can only imagine the rumor mill in this household. The entire staff of Potiphar's estate must have known that Potiphar's wife was after him. She's pretty direct. And we should learn from Joseph. You know, if alcohol is your temptation, don't go to happy hour. Just saying. If alcohol is a temptation, don't, don't go around with friends who drink. If sexual temptations affects you, Many people in this country need to unsubscribe to what's called entertainment. It's just poison. It's heroin for the brain. Pornography is lethal. Worse than rat poison. Robert Deffenbaugh once said, Most Christians want to resist temptation, but they want to be propositioned first. That's really true. They want to play with sin. They want to toy with it. Being seen as desirable by a member of the opposite sex is good for our ego. It's like playing with a rattlesnake. Sooner or later, if you play with a rattlesnake, you will get bit. Sooner or later, if you drink and drive, bad things will happen. It's just a question of when. Verse 11. Now it happened one day that when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that, I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to Potiphar with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Here's the principle. When sexual temptation ambushes you, don't fight it. Flee. Run for your life. Now, Potiphar's wife has planned this pretty carefully. She's arranged that there's going to be nobody in the house but her and him. 
going to blindside him. Then she simply grabs him. She's been coaxing him and verbally accosting him, and that hadn't worked, and she just lays hands on him. And he's got a split second to act. I didn't say he had a split second to decide. He's already decided in advance not to do this. He's already made his decision for purity. He's made a commitment. It's just at this point in time, i got to execute on that commitment. If you don't decide in advance that you will not sin, then you will sin by definition. Because the default for us is to sin. So he wriggles free out of his coat. She is left holding the coat and he runs out of the house. Paul quotes this and says, flee sexual immorality. Here's why you never negotiate with sexual temptation. You never negotiate with sexual temptation because you have a traitor in your own camp. And that's your own flesh. Your own body will betray you and cooperate with the enemy and lead you into sexual sin. You never negotiate with sexual sin. And I'm not just talking about physical adultery. You never negotiate with pornography. You never negotiate with entertainment that leads you places sexually that you should never go. You don't negotiate with that. You have to shut it off and get away from it and stay away from it. And better yet, don't leave the door unlocked. Right? I read about a guy once. He knew he was vulnerable to this. He, he was a traveling guy. He was on the road. At the front desk of the hotel room, he says, I'll go to the room and you take the TV out. Physically take the TV out of the room. Because he knew he'd, he probably would turn the TV on and it would take him places he didn't want to go. They physically took the TV out of all his hotel rooms. Then he would go upstairs. Now that's setting guardrails. That's knowing yourself well enough and not lying to yourself about, I can deal with it. Now you can't deal with it. Your flesh will betray you. When Joseph rejects her advances, Potiphar's wife goes from lust to hate in a nanosecond. You've heard the old phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, she concocts a plan to get rid of this guy that she could not manipulate him. Number one, she lies to the men of the household that Joseph was the one who tried to rape her, and she screamed. And because Joseph heard her scream, he ran out of the house and left his cloak with her. And there, of course, there was no one in the house to hear her scream, so there would be no witnesses, right? Potiphar comes home. She blames him for buying Joseph in the first place. She said, if you hadn't have bought that Hebrew, foreign, undocumented slave who came in here and tried to rape me, none of this would have happened. Now, this is called... False accusation, would you say? She's making this up out of a whole cloth. I'm an innocent victim. No, she's a perpetrator, but we got a problem. Verse 19. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Here's the principle. Suffering may be the price you pay for doing what is right in God's sight. Suffering may be the price you pay for doing what is right in God's sight. It says that when Potiphar heard the accusations against Joseph, his anger burned. It doesn't say his anger burned against Joseph. He was probably furious with the, with the position his wife has put him into. 
He's probably somewhat aware of his wife's flirtations. I don't know how you would not be. And he's completely aware of Joseph's integrity. Joseph has years of demonstrable integrity. It's patently obvious to all of his slaves in the household that his wife has been flirting with Joseph. However, obviously none of these slaves are going to contradict his wife and say, Potiphar, it's your wife's fault. She's the one who put the make on Joseph. None of them are going to say that. Obviously, that would be a death sentence for them. So Potiphar is in between a rock and a hard place. He's got to take action or else he's going to be a laughingstock. How does he call his wife a liar and side with Joseph? She would make his life hell. So he's got the power to execute Joseph, but he doesn't. You would normally think that'd be the obvious thing. If you believed her, he'd execute him. It says he puts him in a very specific jail. The jail where the king's prisoners are kept. Highly likely that Potiphar himself is responsible for this special prison where the king's enemies are kept. Sounds like a jail where political prisoners are kept. You know, those who got on the wrong side of Pharaoh. And this jail is likely located in Potiphar's own house. Chapter 40, verse 3, we'll get there next week, Lord willing. It says the chief butler and the chief baker made Pharaoh mad. doesn't say how, but it says they made Pharaoh mad. And Pharaoh put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Well, who's the captain of the bodyguard? Potiphar. So the chief butler and the baker get put in prison in Potiphar's house. And verse 7 of that same chapter says, when Joseph interviews these butler and baker, it says they were with him in confinement in his master's house. Well, the conclusion is pretty obvious. This political prisoner jail is located on Potiphar's estate. And he's in charge of it. They're all in the same jail. I don't know whether this was a basement under the house or whether this was simply a fortified prison on the grounds of Potiphar's property. But it seems really clear that this particular prison is directly under Potiphar's supervision and is directly on his estate, one form or another. What's fascinating is that in Joseph's case, Potiphar had to take some action, but he didn't execute Joseph. He demoted him, put him into prison. What it tells us is that Potiphar didn't believe his wife's story. If he had, he would have had him executed. Furthermore, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but I don't think it's far off. If Potiphar had executed Joseph, he would have killed the most valuable asset he had. Under Joseph, his estate has prospered magnificently. Everything Joseph touched has been blessed by God and Joseph has given credit to God, and Potiphar knows that Joseph is God's man. Pretty incredible that he would have committed adultery with his wife, and Potiphar knows that. So Potiphar, if he puts him in prison in his own house, maybe in the basement, he can still have access to Joseph's wise counsel. He just needs to trot downstairs to where the prison is and say, Joseph, here's what's going on. What do you think I should do? So he still has access to all his wise counsel. He just got to go to Joseph now instead of Joseph coming to him. This also explains why the chief jailer put Joseph in charge of the prison immediately. He'd been working with him for years, right? Joseph ran the whole estate, so they had a relationship. You know, it's interesting. 
as a Christian, whether we suffer or not is not our concern. Whether you suffer or not is not your job. That's not your job responsibility. That's not your purview. That's up to God. But as a Christian, our concern is to making sure if we do suffer, we suffer for the right reasons. 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, Joseph is suffering for doing what is right. He's obedient, he's moral, he's upright, and he goes to prison under false accusations. That's much better than going to prison for doing what is wrong. And as a Christian, we represent God. Here's in the vernacular, if you get put in jail, get put in jail for the gospel. Nothing less. Don't get put in jail for doing some stupid crime. You're going to go to jail. Go to jail for the cause of Christ. That's the only thing worth going to jail for, and Paul's a pretty good example of that. Verse 21, even more interesting. We see the same phrase now repeated again. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were put in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Have we seen this phrase before? It's the exact same thing it said about Potiphar. It says, it's obvious to everyone that God is with Joseph, so let him manage the whole thing. I mean, it's pretty clear that Joseph has got a gift of administration, would you say? Interesting. You have a spiritual gift. You may have more than one. God expects you to exercise that gift, and when you exercise your gift, you build up his body, and you fulfill the work he gave you to do. One of the reasons that he gave you the gift is he expects you to use it. And he gave a wide variety of gifts. Many of us have a wide variety of gifts. And God didn't give you the gift to sit on it. He gave you the gift to exercise it. Many of you are exercising that gift in your service, wherever it happens to be, inside the church, outside the church, wherever it is. This is more of a word of encouragement. You have been given a gift and you are expected to use it. And the Holy Spirit will supernaturally empower you when you exercise that gift. So don't sit on it. Remember the parable of the talents. One, two, and five, God expects growth. He, he, Jesus said, the one who took the two talents and doubled them to four, well done. The one who took the five talents and doubled them to ten, well done. The only one God got really mad with is the one who had one talent and did what? Buried it. Don't bury the talent God gave you, the spiritual gift. Use it. Joseph is clearly using it. So here's the principle. When you are faithful in the small things... God will entrust you with the tall things. When you are faithful in the small things, God will entrust you with the tall things. See, God's plans always have purpose. You go, why would God put this guy in jail? He's obedient. He's ethical. He's integrity. He's everything God wanted him to be, and God puts him in jail. If God is sovereign, then Joseph didn't show up in jail by himself, right? I mean, this is part of God's plan. Well, God's plan always has purpose. One of the blessings of being put in jail 
is that it got him away from Potiphar's wife. I'm sure Joseph was praying, God, protect me from this woman. God, protect me from this woman. God, protect me from this woman. The Lord said, fine, you're going to jail. That'll keep her out of your hair. And then I'm sure he said, well, Lord, I'm not sure I had that in mind. And wasn't there another way? I'll never forget in um, 2001, my schedule was way too busy. And I said, Lord, I need a little downtime. And I tore a retina in this eye. I need to lay in bed for a week like this with a gas bubble in your eye. And you have a whole week like this, so it takes three months with a chiropractor to get it figured out. And you can't read, and your eye has to be closed. And God has a long time to talk with you. I said, Lord, I really didn't have that in mind. He said, you didn't specify, and I'm God, and this is what I chose. <laughs> so prison got Potiphar's wife away from him. You know, there's an old song that says, God moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform. He does. Furthermore, God was preparing Joseph to be a wise ruler of all Egypt. And before he managed an empire, he had to be faithful in managing a prison. And you're going, wow, does God always start at the bottom? Generally. Humility always precedes exaltation. You want to be master, be servant of all. And the last reason Joseph was in prison, there's probably a lot more that I missed, God had a divine appointment with him. Already set up in prison was somebody called the chief butler, the cupbearer. And this is the man who would introduce him to Pharaoh. Talk about a divine appointment. In prison. God does business in prison. Jesus stated the principle in Luke 16, 10, and he said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. So Joseph has demonstrated this truth for years. You talk about Joseph's faithfulness. He's been faithful to his father in managing sheep. He's been faithful to his father in managing his fellow brother shepherds, even though they hate him. He's faithful to Potiphar as a slave in managing his master's property. He's faithful to God in deciding not to sin with his master's wife, even if it means going to prison falsely under false pretenses. He's faithful in providing for the needs of his fellow prisoners and the jailers as well. He's faithful and true when he interprets the dreams honestly for the chief butler and baker. He remains faithful to God even though the butler forgets him for two years in prison. He doesn't get bitter. He stays faithful. He's faithful in a little, and God's going to make him prime minister of Egypt from prison in one interview. And you and I never would see prison to prime minister in one interview. God was teaching Joseph to trust him regardless of circumstances. If God couldn't trust Joseph to be faithful as a prisoner, he can't trust him to be faithful as a prime minister. And the truth of it is, nothing has changed for you and I. Every single day, God entrusts you and I with experiences. This week, you're going to have experiences. You're going to have circumstances. Every single one of them has been customized by God or allowed by God for your good. And we know what God's goal is, right? Strengthen your faith, increase your intimate walk with Him, separate you from sin, shape you like Jesus. God causes all things to work together for good, and the good is that you and I become like Christ. So this week, we are going to have circumstances and experiences and appointments and people. God love them. All of that, God's going to arrange 
in order to fulfill his purposes. And some of these things you're going to look at and say, I have not a clue what God is up to. That's why he says, the just shall live by faith. That's why he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because we can't understand what he's doing. Joseph saw none of this coming. Joseph was just faithful day by day by day by day. And God took him and his faithfulness and used that to accomplish his purposes. And that's exactly what God wants to do in our lives. So let's summarize before Tom comes up and leads us in prayer and praise. Number one, since God is always with us, we should be faithful to him in whatever circumstances he chooses to put us. And this week he's got circumstances chosen for you and me. Number two, to defeat temptation, we must daily live with an awareness of God's presence. We must determine to remain pure. We must develop a plan in advance and we must declare our position up front. When sexual temptation ambushes, you don't fight it. Flee. Number four, suffering may be the price you pay for doing what is right in God's sight. And lastly, when you are faithful in the small things, God will entrust you with the tall things. I think we've got some work to do. Yes? Amen. I love you all. Thank you so much for coming and being attentive. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.